0: be remaining in the sanctuary if you would please turn in your copy of god's word to psalm chapter 10 psalm chapter 10 as we continue our songs for our savior series psalm chapter 10 beginning in verse 1 together why do you stand afar off o lord why do you hide yourself in times of trouble and pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted, let them be caught in the plots that they have devised for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. The greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times, your judgments are on high out of his sight as for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that the man of the earth will no longer cause terror. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May we hide its words in our heart that we might not sin against you. Father, thank you. That your word endures forever. Father, thank you that your word. Has power to transform our lives by your grace and for your glory. And May we be attentive to it today. In Jesus name. Amen. So this morning, as we continue our series, we have Jesus, the one who sees all. And. In the first couple of verses, particularly verse one, we could have and probably should have, but, but won't, um, spent a lot of time on, on this particular verse. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The question that David is asking, where are you, God? Where are you? Why does God stand in alienation? This is a play on words in the Hebrew text. This this phrase that we have in English um, stand afar off is really the combining of a couple of words that means to stand at attention, to to stand ready to receive, to stand ready to engage and then with the language of a far off means at a great distance or in relational alienation to someone. So God is standing at attention, ready to receive while alienating himself. It's an unusual phrase. But it's the idea of from the perspective of the human. Why are you alienating yourself from me, God? I like to call this the feeling of circumstantial Distance. I I'm sure it's only me. Um, I'm sure that this is the only one that's ever happened to. I'm sure my wife won't mind me sharing because anytime this has ever happened, it's only ever been my fault. And public confession is good for the soul. But it's kind of like if you're in a marital relationship and you've gotten a little crossways. Husbands, you did something really dumb. Oh, come on. Yeah. Amen. Right. Thank you. All right. So you did something really dumb, you know, and you're sitting Right there next to the person. But they might as well be in Milwaukee. You know, like they're not right there. You seem really far away from me. It's the idea of the feeling of circumstantial distance. Circumstances have now dictated a relational feeling of being far away even when they're not. Now, the reality of it is, is that in this case, it's all the psalmist's fault. He's perceiving God as very far away. When in fact, God is not very far away. God's actually intimately in the middle of everything that the psalmist is about to complain about. Now, there's two things. None of this is in your notes, so just bear with me. Like I said, this should have been a sermon and then we should have done the rest of the sermon next week. But there's two things that we should learn from this, that we should glean from this idea of a feeling of circumstantial distance when it comes to our relationship with God. First, it is okay to feel that way. Nobody wants to say amen to that because they don't feel like it's okay to feel that way. Yeah, if you can't say amen, say ouch, that's right. All right. Let me then shift from just making a public declarative statement as the preaching guy to being the pastor guy for a second, the pastoral heart guy, and I'll say it in a more counseling kind of way. It is okay to feel that way. Don't feel guilty for the times in your life when you're really going through it and the wicked seem to be prevailing and you seem to be under a lot of affliction and oppression and a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow is coming your way that in this particular instance really isn't your fault. You haven't really sinned. You're not hiding sin. You haven't done anything wrong. You've searched out your heart. You've had people that have kind of thrown a bit of accountability on you to make sure that you're not straying away from the straight and narrow path. And you just that you're being crushed by the weight of a broken world around you and circumstances are way out of your control and it is causing you to feel like God is abandoning you. Am I going to have to do this? Yes, probably. (sighs) Okay. Y'all know I don't like this. Okay. It makes you feel as if God has abandoned you. It makes you feel as if God has turned His back on you. It makes you feel as if God doesn't care about you anymore. God, don't you see what's going on in my life? Where are you, God? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why do you stand far off? And then, of course, the psalmist moves to verse 2 and explains this feeling. It's coming from the pride of the wicked, wicked and they're hotly pursuing the afflicted. And, they, and, they, and the psalmist wants judgment to happen immediately in the life of those who are causing them unnecessary and undue pain. And in the midst of these circumstances, God feels distant. Friend, do not feel guilty about that. There are dozens and dozens of psalms where the psalmist felt exactly that way. Inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it down so that we would know it's okay to feel that way. The last thing that you need in the middle of of a feeling of circumstantial distance from God is tagging on the guilt of feeling bad that you think God is far away. You don't need that. God wants you to open up the depths of the truth of the pain of your heart to Him. He can handle it. If you don't think He can, You've got the wrong God. He can handle whatever feeling of pain, affliction, frustration, and sorrow you can throw at him. And whatever wrong accusation you want to make about his character in the moment of your pain, he can handle it. When you're suffering through the greatest moments of life, and this is something that I had to learn as a pastor-counselor type person, when you're suffering through the greatest moments of life, God is a little less concerned in your prayers about them being theologically right as you being honest. I know that sounds really weird coming from the pulpit. And those of you who know me well coming from me. But God is a little less concerned about your theological correctness in the moments of your greatest pain as you being honest. Right here, David knows God hasn't gone anywhere. If he's going to be theologically correct, God's right where he's always been. David fully understands that God sovereignly orchestrates negative circumstances to bring about His glory. He's seen it many times in his own life. If David were going to cry out and say this prayer right now, he would not have started it with, why do you stand far off God? Because David knows theologically that God hasn't gone anywhere. In these moments, moments like this, God is less concerned with your theological correctness as He is with your honesty. And the problem with many of us in the deepest, darkest moments of our lives, when we truly have the greatest affliction of heart and of soul, as the old theologians used to call it, when we enter into the dark night of the soul and we are overwhelmed and being crushed on all sides by the pain and the sorrow of life. What we try to do is push away all of those negative emotions and we try to find the line of correctness. God does not want that in moments like this. He wants the honest cry of your heart. And this is what David's doing. So that's the first thing. It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to be honest with God. It's a terrible scene. I don't encourage you to look it up if you've never seen it, but this movie, it, it, it was profound in its impact in the world. Most people have seen it. Most people who are thoughtful Christian people remember it. It bothered me deeply the first time that I saw it, and it still bothers me now whenever I see it, but I get it. Remember the movie Forrest Gump? Of course you do. It's got piles of great one-liners. But there's a scene in the middle of that movie that is horrible. Lieutenant Dan is up on the top of that boat in the middle of that storm. and He is giving God what for? Don't look it up on YouTube if you can't handle it, really. But man, he is being honest with God. Stuff that happened to him in the war, the loss of his legs, the pain that he's been through, the addiction problems that he's had. And he's just... It's rough. It's rough. And then the next day, it's the only boat that didn't sink. And the sun's shining down. And he's still alive. And there's the indication that Forrest says, I think Lieutenant Dan made his peace with God. I wouldn't encourage you to use Lieutenant Dan's language, but sometimes God wants you to be honest. And this is what's happening right here. It is okay to feel that way. It really is. Why are you alienating yourself from me when I need you the most, God? That's what David's saying here. You're supposed to be a sovereign God. You're supposed to be a protector God. You're supposed to be a God who doesn't forsake his people. You're supposed to be a God who upholds us, who keeps us, who shields us, who delivers us. And here I am in the middle of the worst part of my life and you're nowhere to be found. You're a coward God. This is what David's saying. Philip, They said, please don't blaspheme. This is what he's saying. And it's okay to feel that way. It really is. But I told you there are two things. The first one is it's okay to feel that way. It's okay to pray like that. The second one, dear believer, is it's not okay to stay that way. If the psalm ended at verse 2, we would think it's okay to stay that way. Psalm doesn't end at verse 2. Psalm ends at verse 18. We have 16 more verses for David not to stay that way. It's okay to start there. It's not okay to finish there. So it's okay to feel that way. It's okay to pray that way. It's not okay to stay that way. And so the rest of what we look at is a call for justice. And so David expresses why he feels this way. In verses 3 through 11, there's a declaration about what the world is like when the wicked prosper. Because friends, I don't know if you've noticed or not, maybe you've been living in a hole in a cave. I don't know, maybe in a van down by the river. I don't know where you've been. But the wicked prosper. It's not a if the wicked are going to prosper. It's a when and for how long will the wicked prosper. This is very easy to note. Most of us don't have to go outside of our immediate circles of influence to see that this is true. If you have to step outside of your immediate circle of influence. Just watch the news for a few minutes. You will see that the wicked prosper. So let's 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 see what David's complaint is. First, in verses three through four, he expresses the pride of the wicked The wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He boasts of his heart's desire. This is kind of an ancient thought. We don't really have this thought anymore today because we've become such an advanced society. But this concept of of boasting of your heart's desire is, is I'll do what I want, when I want, how I want. I'm glad nobody thinks like that anymore. It's been that way since the fall, actually. In every culture, in every place, in every language, for all times. There's a boast in the wicked man's heart of his proud desires. I will do what I want, when I want to do it, in the way that I want to do it. And no one, no one will keep me from it. Now, I know for some of you, you're squirming. I see it like I was squirming when I was studying this. So you're it's it's all good. All right. Squirming is a proper response to this right now. The reason we all get a little squeamish when we hear this is because we go, well, wait a minute. I'm part of the righteous. I'm the one who's been saved by Christ. I'm not counted among the wicked anymore, but I act like that a lot. That's what makes us uncomfortable. And it should. Because one of the great designators of those who are now in Christ is a humility of heart. I am not boastful of my heart's desires anymore. It's not about what I want, when I want it, how I want it. It's about what does God want? And what is it that I must sacrifice and give up in order for God to demonstrate his will through my life? Self-sacrificial love. Friends, it's the hardest place for any of us to get to. Which is why every day we have to preach the gospel to ourselves again and again. And again, but the issue with the wicked, they have this this boast of their heart's desire. And then in the next part, it's translated in NASB as and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. Probably better the way that the verbs work there is a translation of this wicked man blesses the greedy man and spurns the Lord. This is still the action of the wicked man. So not only does he want what he wants when he wants it, but he also blesses those who live that same way. That's the definition of being greedy. And he spurns the Lord in the process. Greed can manifest itself in so many different ways. Greed of money is the most obvious one from the scripture. Greed of time. Greed of gifts greed of effort, greed of energy, greed of power, greed of fame. There's a lot of ways for us to cling to things. And in the process, we could spurn the Lord. And then notice, and this is a very common verse, very well-known verse, in verse 4, Says the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance, there's that pride again, does not seek him, does not seek God. All of his thoughts are there is no God. Practical Atheism. And by the way, that word thoughts is also best translated as plots or action or planned activity. All the things that he maps out to do in his life are mapped out with no thought to the existence of God. He might say with his mouth that there is a God, but he lives in his life as if there is not one practical atheism. And the great trouble for a great number of religious people is that a great number of people who claim religion, who claim Christ, who claim Christianity, claim a a variety of other religions, they claim with their voice a religious reality, when in fact, with their lives, they demonstrate that they have no religious reality at all. I guarantee you, the people that David was talking about in this psalm, whoever they were, whether they were people among the nation of Israel who were creating civil unrest and discontent, or they were enemies outside of the reality of the nation of Israel who were pagans, none of those people would have been identified as atheist. They would have had some deity that they worshipped. A number of them, the true God, Jehovah. Yet their lives showed no religious reality at all. This is the pride of the wicked. But then notice as he continues... There's the prosperity of the wicked, this prospering that the wicked has. His ways, the wicked ways prosper at all times. At all times. Your judgments are on high and out of his sight. He's unconcerned about what you as a God may or may not do to him. And as for all of his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved throughout all my generations. I will not be in adversity. This prosperity that he has, real or imagined, happens all the time. And he has established himself there's nothing that can happen to me to move me off of the plan that I have to to establish the highest level of self-satisfaction that I'm capable of. And it doesn't matter who he steps on in his ladder toward greatness. He will crush everyone underfoot, if necessary, to accomplish his goals. Now, I just want to throw this in as an aside If along the way of our description of the wicked, you feel like this is sounding like you, take note. Because this is not the way that the Christian's character should sound. And it may be that you need to repent of waywardness, or it may be that you need to call upon Christ for deliverance altogether. Because David is giving a description of what the life of the wicked is like. And it should not be what the life of the righteous looks like. And so we have this one who says, I'm not going to be moved. I won't be in adversity. I'll do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. I'm going to bless those who act that same way. I'm going to shun the things of God. God doesn't see me. God will not judge me. I will accomplish all of my purposes of self-satisfaction and no one or nothing will get in my way. And then we find the mark of the wicked in his prosperity of what's the most oppressive thing about him. And it's his speech. It's his speech that is truly oppressive. Notice David begins here in verse seven. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. Curses and deceit and mischief. A lot can be learned about a person in their use of words. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of verses in the Bible that talk about the use and misuse use of language and the mouth and the tongue. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Jesus himself went so far as to say that by your very words, you'll be either condemned or by your words, you'll be delivered. It's a profoundly important thing. In fact, in my opinion, it's one of the greatest things in humanity that demonstrates that we have been made in the image of God. In the creation story, God begins calling things what they are, light and darkness and sky and sea and earth. And then he makes a human person and he gives distinctly to that human person who bears his image. The capacity we see in Genesis chapter two to name everything else. We see that Jesus is called the word. And in being the Word, He expounds the image of the invisible God. And we now, as the church, have the capacity to expound that same image of the invisible God through the declaration of the Gospel, unlike any other living thing that exists. And so when someone in their pride and in their wickedness uses their mouths for wayward causes, they are demonstrating the height of not properly bearing the image of God. And it's oppressive to everyone around. When you've been lied to, it's difficult to recover from. When someone speaks ill of you or gossips about you, when they abuse you with speech, it's sometimes even more profoundly painful than if they were to have physically abused you. When you sit down with people who have gone through abuse situations and they've come out on the back end of it, And you ask them the difficulties that they faced more times than not, not every time, but more times than not. The person who was only physically abused versus the person who was only verbally abused. The person who was verbally abused felt it more and had longer problems from it. Why? Because there's a severity of pain that comes from the misuse of the mouth. And that old nursery rhyme is a total lie. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's absolutely false. Stop teaching your kids that nonsense. The method and the way that we use our mouths has a profound impact on the way the world looks. Mischief, oppression, cursing, deceit. We have to be careful with our words. Because they reflect in us the image of God. And so this individual speech is truly the most oppressive thing about them. And it's not by accident that right after the description of their speech, they move into this lurking behavior. He's in the lurking places. He's hiding to kill the innocent. He's watching stealthily the unfortunate. He's lurking like a lion in his lair. He's lurking to catch the afflicted. He draws them in with a net. He crouches. He bows down. The unfortunate ones fall to him. And then he says of God, God has forgotten. He'll never see. Now, are there those who physically lurk? Yes, absolutely. But more times than not, the wicked are looking for an opportunity to defame and deface people with their words. They're waiting for just that right moment to say just that right sentence that completely wrecks and ruins someone's character in the world. And, friends, there's nothing new under the sun, just the technology and the means to do it better and more frequently. It's one of the reasons why social media is such a gift and such a bane on society such a gift because there's people that you can stay in contact with that otherwise you would have lost touch with. There's things that you can find out about that you would have never known about. And people who can express concerns to you and you can know how to pray for them in profound ways that probably never would have happened before, almost instantaneously. And just as quickly, worlds and lives can be ruined by the quick on a keyboard. Waiting for just the right moment to say just the right thing. Whether it's true or not, doesn't matter. Mischief, deceit, oppression. This is how the wicked work. This is how the wicked in our world work. Sadly, it's how we as Christians, when we are acting wickedly, work if we're not careful. And so we see this lurking. There's a complete disregard for justice, particularly divine justice. I don't care if it's just. All I care about is that it went my way. Now, fortunately, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put an asterisk by this. Fortunately, all the lawyers that I know in our church are not this way. I have to put an asterisk out there before I say what I'm about to say. But I was having a conversation with a friend of mine a bunch of years ago who has some very different political and religious opinions than I do, who happens to be a lawyer. And we were both bemoaning how horrible our political system was. It's funny how you can be on two different sides of politics, but both agree that our political system is horrible. It's amazing how that works. Maybe we should all start there and work backwards and maybe we can come to actual good resolutions. And I... Equipped with him and I said, well, you know what the problem with our political system is? He says, what's that? I said, it's filled with lawyers because he is a lawyer. He just started laughing. He said, what do you mean by that? I said, well, you know the problem with you lawyers. You're not really worried about what's right or what's true or what's best. You're really just worried about what's going to win the day for your client. And he said, "Ooh, but yeah, that's that's pretty much true. <laughs> he said, you could have a client come into your office and tell you I did it. And you take his case and you're trying to prove to everybody he didn't do it. You're not worried about what's true. You're worried about what's going to win the day for your client. I said, what is it? Three-fourths of Congress are all trying to do this. They're trying to win the day for the client. They're not worried about what's best. Now, that's not true of all people who are in law. I'm looking at various lawyers in the room right now. I see you guys. Uh, Praise God, Sylvania has very morally upright lawyers. It's awesome. Some of you need to get over the fact that I just said morally upright lawyers because you don't think that's real. It is real. There's some good guys in the law field. There really are. But at the end of the day, these guys, these wicked guys, they don't care about justice. They don't care about divine justice. They don't care about the thing being true, the thing being right, the thing being beautiful, and the thing being good. They just care that they get their way. Now, friend... I know that a lot of our minds just went to a whole bunch of circumstances and people and groups and organizations. But let's make sure that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. How many of us often don't care if a thing is right? I just want it to go my way. And so as as David is unpacking this prosperity of the wicked, there has to be a little bit of self-examination that takes place. I need to make sure that if I'm going to bemoan the wickedness in the world, that somehow I'm not sweeping myself up into the category of those wicked people. You know, the whole speck and log dynamic that Jesus gives us. And so then David has a call to action again, like he usually does in Psalms like this one. Arise, O Lord. Oh, God, lift up your hand. This is a picture of a call for divine judgment. Execute judgment in the world. David is asking a question. In verse 13, you see the beginning of this. And it explains here in the next few verses. 13 through about 15. David asked, why do the wicked seem to get away with all of this? Why do they seem to get away with it? You look across and you see people doing wretched things. It's obvious to anyone who's kind of paying attention. Clearly this person has cheated the system. Clearly this person lied. Clearly this person abused their power. Clearly this person did this horrible, heinous thing that has occurred. It is obvious there's no way that we could not find this person guilty. And then they get away with it. And David is asking an honest question. Similar to the honest question he asked at the beginning. God, why does it seem like the wicked keep getting away with this stuff? And then he says, Lord, you have seen it. Notice the shift. It's okay to start that way. It's not okay to end that way. Notice the shift. It started out, God, you're far away. You don't have any idea what's going on. To, God, I know you've seen it. Notice what it says. Arise, O Lord. Lift up your hand. Don't forget the afflicted. Why have the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, You won't require it, but you have seen it. I know you've seen it, God. I know you have. And then notice what he says when he says that he knows that God has seen it. God, you have seen it. Verse 14, for you have beheld mischief and vexation and you take it into your hand. God, you take all of these wicked acts from all of these wicked people and you grab it up with that hand that you've raised up for judgment. A better picture is you've taken it by the neck. You've taken it by the neck. When, and this is just culturally true because it's just how the physics of the human body works, but when you're ready to grab a hold of somebody who's at a place they're not supposed to be and remove them, quite often it involves the grabbing of somebody by the scruff of the neck. Because if somebody can get you by the back of the neck and get an arm out of the way, there's not a whole lot that you can do to keep them from moving them wherever they want you to go. You have grabbed a hold of this wickedness and this vexation and you've put it in your hand. Notice what he says. He keeps going. The unfortunate commits himself to you. And you have been a helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Wow. Break the arm. They're doing all of this with the power of their strength. Cause them to be without strength. Cause them to be powerless to continue to do this wickedness. Notice, I love this verse 15. It's beautiful. End of verse 15. It's amazing. Seek out his wickedness. Until you find none. What does David want the Lord to do? I want you to grab a hold of all this wickedness, God. I know you see it. You've, your arm is raised. You're going to execute judgment. You're a righteous judge. I, I know all these things are true. doesn't feel true right now, but I know these things are true. So God, what I want you to do is fulfill your promise. You want to drive wickedness from the face of the earth. God, seek out all the wickedness that you can find until you find no more. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Wouldn't it be profoundly wonderful to wake up tomorrow and there be no wickedness left in the world? Just a real quick clue in, it's not going to happen. If you wake up in this world tomorrow, there will be wickedness here. Why? Because you and I will still be here. had a guy tell me a bunch of years ago, he said, Philip, you ever find the perfect church, don't go be their pastor. You mess it up. Because I'm not perfect. I have wickedness. If I'm still here, there's going to be wickedness in this world. If you're still here, there's going to be wickedness in this world. And if you wake up with a bunch of unsaved people, there'll be profound wickedness still in this world. One day when glory is there, the final resurrection and the establishment of all things in Christ, we'll wake up to a world where there's no wickedness. Praise God. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But this is the longing of David's heart. God, search out wickedness in this world until you find none. Mm. And then notice what he says. Remember, you can start there, but you can't end there. The Lord is king forever and ever. Listen to me. Listen, listen, listen. Why do you stand far off, O oh God? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The Lord is king forever and ever. Thank God that the psalm did not end at verse 2. Nations have perished from his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble and you will strengthen their heart Notice that there is a contrasting of the wicked who are pride and, uh, full of pride and, and they're haughty. They, they don't think God can see or do anything about their lives uh, over against the humble, the ones who've yielded themselves to the kingship of the Most High God found in Christ Jesus. Lord, you've heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You incline your ear. To them to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. Why? Why does God purge the nations? Why does he hear the humble? Why does he strengthen and vindicate the lowly and the downcast and the oppressed? Why does he do that? Listen to this last part in verse 18. So that the man who is of the earth. Notice where he's from and where he's up. He's of the earth. He's not of the kingdom of heaven. He's not about earthly things. He's not been transferred in the kingdom of God. He's of the earth, so that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. Wouldn't that be great? Can you just, in your spiritual imagination, for just a second, try to think about what the world would be like If men and women, boys and girls, young and old, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of language, regardless of which piece of geography they occupy in this world, if when you woke up tomorrow, not one person was causing terror to another person on this planet. And we can think big scale if you want to, you know, nobody's trying to blow up buildings and nobody's trying to start wars and nobody's trying to save 15 cents on a tank of gas by, you know, bombing some village someplace. Yeah, we could go there. We could go big, you know. Maybe we could go small. Maybe some husband's not being absently minded, dismissive of his family. Maybe some wife's not being crass and rude and disrespectful. Maybe some kid is being happily and faithfully obedient. Maybe some parents aren't provoking their kids to wrath. Maybe church members are loving one another and meeting each other's needs with a full measure of self-sacrifice. Maybe people are assuming the best about the other and not assuming wrong motives in the other. Maybe we're not all wearing our feelings on our sleeves all the time and being wounded so easily. Maybe no one is causing anyone any terror. Maybe bosses are the compassionate kind that are easy to work for and employees are the hardworking kind that make bosses' jobs easy. Maybe students follow through with their studies Without being dismissive of how dumb this subject is. Why do I need to know this? So Philip, you're getting way down in the weeds. and no, I'm getting down in real life. We cause terror to each other all the time. We don't have to see something blown up on the news to know that it's happening. The way we treat each other in traffic. The way we treat each other standing in line at the grocery store. The way we treat each other in our interactions with one another. The way we treat each other in our homes the way we treat each other in our workplaces. There's plenty of terror to go around without turning the news on. And God has been called upon by the psalmist to eradicate wickedness and the prosperity of the wickedness from the world. Why? Why? For what reason? So that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. I can't speak into the lives of those who are outside of the faith, but I can speak into the lives of those who are inside the faith, particularly those who have opted to be in this room today. We need to examine ourselves. It is God's desire that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror those things that frighten us, those things that hurt us, those things that cause us unnecessary pain. Ask yourself, I'll ask myself, am I that man? If God were to accomplish this today, would I have to cease to be because I am part of the problem rather than being part of the solution? Am I the one who's humble in heart, yielding himself to the kingship of the Most High God? Or is verses 3 through 11 a greater description of my life? I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to have it my way. And there's no one who's going to stand in my way. I'm going to get mine. Or, I bow to the authority of the Most High God. Whatever you want from me is yours and I will lay down whatever thing needs to be laid down and I will take up whatever thing needs to be taken up because I do not want to be a man who causes terror. Rather, I want to be one who, like you, God, strengthens the afflicted. Friends, I do really think that we can see the beginnings, not the end of it, the end is in glory, but I think we could see the beginnings of this beautiful world that David is asking for if we just started in our own lives. If we all grabbed a hold of the idea that in Christ I am to reflect the glory of God and the glory of God among humanity is for me not to be a man of terror however big or small that might be. Why? Because as the title of the sermon says, Jesus is the one who sees all. Notice when we got here, he says, God, I know you see it. Jesus sees it. Why can you be honest like David was at the beginning? Because Jesus sees it. He knows it. He knows what's in the heart. He knows what's in the mind. He searches the deep things, the Scripture says. And so this morning, the challenge that we need to grab a hold of is that Jesus is already aware of what's going on in my heart, my mind, and my life. And He has called my heart and my mind and my life to reflect Him, not my selfish desires. And the world would be a markedly better place... If I looked more like Jesus, everybody in here nodded the affirmation. Some even gave the Amen when I said, "Wouldn't it be a great world for us to live in if you woke up tomorrow and it looked like that?" You know what? There's one person that you can do that with. That's you. It's one person I can do that with. It's me. I can wake up tomorrow and not be a man of terror. I can wake up tomorrow and be humble under the rule of the Most High God. And by being so, the promise of God's word is, that little piece of the world that I find myself in will be a more glorious place. I'm not saying it'll be an easier place, but it'll be a more glorious place. Why? Because the glory of God will be reflected there. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for difficult texts like this one. Texts that start out raw and make us uncomfortable in the honesty that they have and that end with the truth that makes us even more uncomfortable because the truth is so profound and weighty. Father, if the description of the wicked man that we saw in the middle of this psalm more closely describes our lives than that of the one who has humbly submitted themselves to the glory of the King. Father, forgive us. Forgive us. Break us, shake us, transform us. Father, you are moving in your world Toward a display of your glory and your righteousness through your people. God, grant us the grace and the mercy to be a part of that reflection. Father, you have already won the victory over our sin. You have already given to us by grace through faith and repentance the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Father, let us live freely and fully in the gifts that you have given us that the world might see humble submission to the one true king who reigns forever and ever. And we give you all the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of respect.